Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Asked Map. We are happy to be here and answering any questions that you may have like we do every week. My name is Courtney Lewis. I'm a prior director of admissions at a medical school in the Southwest. And I am joined by our co-founder, Rachel Grubbs. Thank you for being on the call. Hello, I love being here. Yeah. How are you doing person. today? Great. Uh, I left all my windows open last night, despite it being like in the 30s. So my house is chilly and I'm drinking coffee, but I'm a polar bear. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> nice, nice. That's very, that's very seasonal and festive. We, yes. We're still too warm here in New Mexico to realize that Christmas is right around the corner. So. Yeah. yeah, I remember being so heartbroken as a child when I realized it didn't just automatically snow on Christmas like the movies yeah. indicated it would. <laughs> but it is usually chilly on yeah. Christmas. <laughs> You're lucky there. All right. And then Dr. Scott Wright, who is here and has a background in TMD, SAS, and being a director of admissions as well. So welcome. Hi, hi, hi. How's, how's it going, everybody? Uh, it's always good to be here. We, we say this a lot, that this is our favorite time of the week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's such an energizing uh, activity for us, and we love uh, answering your questions. So I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, helping people out today. All right. So if you have never joined before, it's an open platform. We're willing to answer anything and everything, med school application, prepping, um, pathways, journeys, um, and everything in between. So if you have questions, just type them in and we will try to discuss them, answer them, and um, get going. Wow. I know, it's probably the most quiet I've ever yeah. seen. Some days they're more shy than others. Some days are two days out from finals. Yeah. I was going to say, probably in full prep mode for finals and, and graduation and everything like that. And so, yeah. Here yeah. I did see one come in that we can uh, dig into. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a non-traditional, about to graduate with a BS in bio. Congratulations. My GPA is a 3.9, which is great. I'm using the Blueprint live course to study for the MCAT, but I only have 85 clinical shadowing hours. Are these enough hours? I'm going to leave this one open-ended to whoever wants to take it on. I I can share as well. Um, yeah, I can chime in first. So um, Jelani, sometimes I have a history in test prep. And so in, in addition to MCAT, I've done GMAT. And in GMAT, there are math problems that they don't actually expect you to solve. They just expect you to analyze them and then decide, did we give you enough data to solve? And I'm saying all of that because this is a good example of an insufficient data question. Um, I don't think we can tell you if 85 hours are enough for a couple reasons. One is 
clinical and shadowing aren't the same thing. And a lot of people get them confused, but clinical is observing a physician or sorry, no, clinical is personal hands-on patient care experience and shadowing is observing. So I'd be interested to know how many of those were shadowing versus how many of them were you, you know, firsthand experience with a patient. The other is enough is subjective. It's not about I hit a certain number of hours. It's about I had enough meaningful experiences and it made enough impact on me that I'm going to have rich patient care stories to use in my essays. Um, 85 sounds a little light to me, but it's possible if they were really impactful hours and only you really know mm -hmm. whether or not that was the case. Yeah, and I, I will say, I will say that I agree with that completely, uh, Rachel. And and uh, Jelani, what I would say is, or maybe it's Yelani since it's Spanish, right? Hmm. Yelani. Maybe. Anyway, uh, I, I'm sorry. How are you pronounce your name? <laughs> um, I would say that admissions committees are definitely going to look at what you say about those experiences and how rich they were and how much reflection you give to those uh, experiences. However, I will also say that they are used to seeing hundreds of hours um, of, of, of experiences. And so when somebody comes in that has a notably lower amount of hours, even if they're reflecting well and telling these nice stories and stuff, I still think it can affect how that sort of plays out with the admissions committee because they're just so used to seeing, you know, a lot more than that. And, and it, it could easily, you know, not that it comes down to the number all the time, but um, it, it could be a, a little bit of a red flag if a admissions committee sees that there's only that, you know, that limited number of hours. So just be aware of that. Uh, I would say, you know, definitely something that you're going to need to, to, uh, to probably get, you know, get more experiences. Uh, hopefully uh, that's something that you're excited about because that's where, you know, motivation comes from those experiences often. So, mm -hmm. uh, so just think about that. Yeah. We see a wide range of hours that come in. So, it's a little bit hard to say. I've seen army medics that were, you know, combat medics. They have 10,000 plus hours all the way down to a couple of shadowing experiences that totaled, you know, 16, 20, 50 hours. So um, balance is good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other questions coming in? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Kyle. What GPA should I aim for to get into medical school? Um, this is an interesting question. Uh, it's gonna differ depending on your academic record. So when we receive your application, we are gonna be able to look at all of the coursework you've taken, the times in which you took it, the course load, um, and kind of map that out. The reason that it's hard to give a definitive number on this is because we leave it as med school somewhat open-ended because we don't wanna rule out you know, career changers or, or non-traditional students or people who may struggle 
the first semester or two, you know, where they already lose their shot there. Um, we want to be able to explore all options and all applicants that come in. Um, so that's why it's a little bit difficult to find a definitive GPA number, but we do have the metrics for the national averages of matriculants, which, you know, that means there's people above and below that number, but um, it's around what it's three six I know on DO side and yeah, probably three seven ish on yeah. uh, on the MD side and I, I would add mm -hmm. to that Courtney that um, if you look at it statistically if if you look at the average um, GPA for entering students into medical schools MD wise it's usually around three three seven three seven five. And the standard deviation to that is about 0.2 or so. And so if, if you think about it in that way, the, the vast majority of students are in the three, five and above area. Uh, maybe DO, it might be three, four and above area. But, you know, statistically, if you look at it that way. So I would say, Kyle, if you're shooting for, if you're aiming for uh, a GPA, aim for some three, five or better. And obviously, you always want to aim at the, the you know, the perfect. Uh, but noting that a lot of people won't get that. But if you'll if you'll try to get in that area three five and above, that's a that's a good area to be in. Doesn't mean that, that you won't get in if you're below that. It just means that um, you know that's going to be an area where a lot of students, a, a huge number of students, are in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know. Depending on their evaluation process and when they kind of dig into the material, sometimes um, that front number can carry some weight and kind of put you in a category. But we do have the opportunity to look again at course load, see if you had some, you know, really heavy <laughs> semesters and things like that. And if you were doing experience or working full time or, or doing other things while in school. But yeah, if, if you're asking for what would put you in a competitive range and, and what you can aim for if you have all opportunities available to you, I would agree, three, five and above possible. Okay, next question, if we have one. Okay, Adam, do international students generally make it off the wait list? I'm a Canadian non-traditional with a physical therapy master's waitlisted at a USDO. What are some things I can do to get off the wait list? Anybody want to tackle this one? Um, prayer. Get your checkbook out. No, I'm kidding. Oh, no. I'm just joking. I a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Adam... Do international students generally make it off the wait list? There's no way we can answer a question that general. Um, decisions are going to vary year to year, school to school, committee to committee. Um, do students generally make it off the wait list? Typically a few do and a lot don't, right? That's, that's the reality. Um, so, you know, kind of from this time of year onward, our rough rule of thumb is if you haven't had any interviews or you're starting to get a lot of wait lists and rejections by, um, by American Thanksgiving, which was last Thursday, I know yours was a little earlier, Adam, um, that's typically when we say start thinking about reapplying, which doesn't mean you have to give up hope. It just means start assessing your application and figuring out 
what could I do to make it stronger before May so that if you have to apply again, you have time. Um, what are some things you can do off the wait list? I mean, honestly, there's not a lot. Um, Courtney, one thing I've heard you mention is if they have any like live sessions, you know, first looks, mm -hmm. go get FaceTime. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a significant update, so not just, hey, I really wanna go there, because they know, <laughs> right? But here's a thing that's happened in my life that I think significantly improves my application and I wanna share. Mm -hmm. You could send that. Um, but yeah, this, in my opinion, is the hardest part of the entire application process mm -hmm. is the waiting. Yeah, it's a hurry up and wait situation. It, it is really difficult. And I can tell you, you know, my years as a director, each year was a bit different on how many ultimately I ended up needing from the wait list um, because it's it's student driven. So if I offer a seat to somebody, I'm full. The only movement that will happen is, you know, kind of when the multiple acceptance list comes out and, and things like that, where people have to lock down and not be holding two seats at once. They have to release that other seat. And so you never quite know um, how much movement you're going to have. And so stay in contact with them, not unprofessionally amount, you know, of, of contact, but, um, you know, if they have shadowing days, if they have presentations or opportunities or second looks and things like that, make sure that you participate in those to show them that you're still interested, you're seeking additional information and chances to get to know them better. I'm not sure it really has anything to do with being Canadian or non-traditional, if they put you on the wait list, that means that they would be comfortable having you in the class. Yep. So it was likely more of a situation of the seats were full and you know, that it's just, you never really know how quickly things are gonna fill up the deposit timeline and things like that. And so unfortunately they didn't have a seat at that point or they wanted to kind of see what was coming in throughout the cycle and they kind of withhold certain offers. So you can definitely hold out hope. I would encourage you to follow what Rachel said, which is at least be thinking and actively still doing things, participating in things, strengthening, because if you get into med school, it's going to be helpful. If you don't and you have to reapply, at least you've done some things to strengthen your foundation and, and update your application as well. So best of luck to you. Yeah. Yep. Arturo. Okay. I've been extremely reluctant to ask this. Okay. <laughs> but do you all have any advice or information for those of us who are currently working in other field? I work in aerospace and I'm trying hard to get into med. Okay. Well, I mean, we, we meet with these, you know, people in very similar situations as you all the time. So you're not, the only one that's that's wanting to do this as a career changer, it certainly can be done. You need to be thoughtful and strategic. Um, you know, usually your time is a bit more limited and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that go into preparing you. So you have a solid foundation prior to entering med school and even applying. But anybody want to go into any specifics? I can take it to 
Yeah, I'll chime in. So Arturo, first, I'm, I'm not sure why you felt reluctant, but I'm really glad you did. We work with so many career changers, so many so-called non-traditionals, and especially with you coming um, from a background in aerospace. I mean, people can come from any walk of life. Mm -hmm. I There's someone I really admire on Instagram who's, um, actually, I think she just finished med school, so she's a resident now, who was an actress before she became a physician. So like any anything can lead to anything. But you know, you're in aerospace, so you're probably no stranger to rigorous math and science and a lot of discipline studying. So you've got that going for you. And you didn't mention where you are in the process. You're probably gonna have to go back and take some courses that just weren't included in your degree that now are, are recommended for pre-med. But that is currently a lower concern for me. What I would say is, if you feel like you want to change careers, one of the best ways to motivate yourself, but also confirm that desire is go get clinical experience, mm -hmm. right? So before you think about, do I cut my job or quit my job? Do I cut my job hours? Do I try to manage you know, a post-bac program on top of a full-time job? And if you're already doing those things, you're not in trouble. But I'm saying if you're at the very beginning, what I would say do first is, go find a part-time clinical job or clinical volunteering. Go get yourself around patients. Because if this goes the way you think it's going to go, that's gonna be the highlight of your week. You're gonna love it. And it's gonna fuel you to do all this work to change careers. Mm -hmm. um, now, worst case scenario, you get in there and you go, you know what? I realized I love taking care of my grandma, but I don't love taking care of other people's grandmas. And if that's the case, won't you be glad that you found out before you dropped $50,000 on a post pack? <laughs> um, so, so that's my advice. Go interact with patients. It can be volunteer, it can be paid. Just go, you know, it doesn't have to be in a hospital. It could be hospice, a senior home. There's lots of ways to get clinical experience, but I would say start there. And you're yep. agree. I yep. agree completely. Yeah, definitely doable. I think mm -hmm. probably Dr. Wright, you you would agree. I've I've matriculated people oh, so with all kinds of yeah. different backgrounds yeah. and yep. um, different ages, different pathways, and, and coming from so many different places. You so know. many, yeah. yeah. But yeah. but you add richness to the class, and you know this life experience that you've been able to have in this career provides you with a lot of really valuable life experience working in a team, working in the real world, and. Um, also just, if you know, this is a path that you want to do, there's that, that grit to get it done. And so, um, it's, it can be helpful in, in helping kind of get you through this process. But yeah, we've, we've matriculated people coming from all types of different, uh, professions. Yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Carol, my experience with patient in informs the majority of why of my why, but it wasn't in a clinical setting. I created a nonprofit and I helped people increase communication with their docs, mm. not clinical, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah not, clinical. not clinical. Super cool. And interesting. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say any school that sees this is going to view it very favorably and a lot of the med schools do look for community volunteer efforts and initiatives and will will value that very highly. But yeah, this wouldn't fall under that category. It would be more in um, the volunteer mm -hmm. 
section. Agreed. All right, Jordan chuckles. Hi, I graduated in three years and I'm currently in my senior gap year. I'm planning to apply in 2023, currently working full-time with MCAT studying. What are the best ways to demonstrate leadership? Okay. <laughs> I was not expecting that question after. All right. <laughs> <Me though. laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, I know kind of what I've seen from other applicants. Usually they had leadership or elected positions in clubs and organizations that they were part of in school. Sometimes at work, they were able to, you know, get promoted or be in a managerial position, um, taking on lead in research in the lab that they're working on. Those are a handful of things that I've encountered. Uh, over the past, you know, mm -hmm. number of years, anybody have any other suggestions? Yeah, I think I, I think you have to think broadly yeah. about what leadership is. You okay. know, so you said you're working full time. So what do you do at work? Do you have? Are, are you doing leadership type things? Even if you're not mm -hmm. a leader in terms of your title, mm -hmm. uh, if you are on a team and you are the lead for that team or you know there was a project and you were the lead for that project uh, that's leadership mm -hmm. uh, so you know think broadly about what you've done and what you are doing uh, and, and really uh, emphasize that and, and I would say if you're you know working full-time go to your uh, boss at work and say hey you know I'm really really interested in, in you know developing leadership skills and you know anything that you can do to help me do that, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I'd be very happy to, do, you know, bite into that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but you got to think broadly about, about what this is, what leadership mm -hmm. means. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a common mistake that a lot of people think um, it has to be the officer of a club and it can be that, but that's mm -hmm. just one way. Um, and there's only so many officer roles. Yep. Um, uh, when I was in college admissions, I knew some boys from St. Ignatius in the Cleveland area where in their clubs, every junior was vice president and every president, every senior was president. And they thought that was some magical lead to, lead to leadership. Like college admissions people don't often look at students from the same school at the same time. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is so common to say, you know, we only take eight from St. Ignatius, so let's look at all 40 of them at once. Like, they can't see through that crap. I mean, that did not do those guys any favors. Yeah. In the grand scheme of college admissions, it wasn't much of a scandal, right? We've seen worse. But I think, like, what a weird, stupid thing to cheat about when it honestly doesn't carry that much weight. Like, I don't care about your title with leadership. I care about what you did. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like Courtney and Scott are saying, it might be that you were the officer of club or it might be that you took the lead on a project or it might be that you coached little kids soccer. I mean, that's leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to kind of think and if, you know, hopefully for these essays, you're already digging deep and being really reflective. But if you're having trouble, ask your friends and family, ask people who love you, ask your coworkers. Um, it, what they have to think say about their leadership and hopefully they're going to be honest enough to say actually here are some areas you can improve or you know when I really felt like I could count on you and look up to you was and like maybe that'll springboard some stories yeah mm -hmm. 
Okay, Bridget. Hi, do you think my structured postback will give me a good chance to enter medical school? I will be taking repeat courses and upper level classes. This is a bit hard to answer with the amount of information that we have because we don't want to lead anyone astray. And there's a lot of factors that go into somebody's academic profile and length and time and what's going to be best. And um, so if you needed to repeat courses and kind of strengthen your foundation or um, have something that displayed that you could handle a certain volume of courses at the same time, it's probably going to be helpful if you perform well in that at an upper division. Um, but to say it's going to give you a good chance, it would probably improve them, but that's about all we can say with that. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to chime in? It's, it's kind of hard to answer. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Insufficient data. Yep. Yeah. All right, Turth. For getting into med schools, what exams I need to take other than MCAT, CASPER preview, and AAMC preview? Um, professional readiness exam. Other than MCAT, when should I take the other three tests? Mm, April, mm. May. Yeah. So it varies, right? You may not have to take Casper or Preview. You listed Preview twice. I assume you mean like the Casper Duet Snapshot Suite, right? All the ones that come from Altus, which I guess mm. now is going to be Acuity. Yeah. And then there's the one from the AAMC that, you know, mm. is, is the Preview. <clears throat> So um, you can look on their websites to see which schools require them. I just would say take it with a grain of salt because right now it's probably listing things for the current cycle for students who want to um, enroll for 23. So these tests are newish and each year more schools add. So just make sure that next year in the spring you look again. Um, but yeah, typically I think of these tests as part of the secondary process. So. Um, you can do it earlier if you're ready and you've got the space because they do tend to open in the spring, but sometime in late spring, early summer is probably when you're taking um, the, the, these other non-MCAT tests are referred to as situational judgment tests. And that's when you're taking those. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's see. How should I explain to medical schools why I don't have a committee letter from my undergrad uni because I wasn't qualified as a non-traditional student? And how is it viewed? Do I explain in apps or in interviews? This is a great question and it definitely comes up and I think the answer will probably differ school to school. But we do understand, I would say, I think there is consensus that we do understand that not everybody will qualify for a committee letter, either based on missing the deadline, being on a different timeline, being a non-traditional student and things like that. So I think if you have a reason for it, it'll be just fine. I don't think I've Personally, I, I never ruled out anybody just because they didn't have a letter because right. I didn't say it was a requirement. I said you could use this or that. Mm -hmm. And if you are able to still submit the required letters, it's not a committee packet, then that still qualifies. And I'm mm -hmm. going to look at those and, and evaluate 
what you did provide. And so mm -hmm. um, we understand that sometimes there's just extenuating circumstances that would impede somebody from getting a committee letter and that it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's not necessarily reflected of, of your preparedness or um, mm -hmm. you, know, you as an applicant. Yeah. And I, and I would say too, that I don't bring it up. I mean, if it, it, I, I would just leave it. And if they ask in an interview, you know, just respond to it. But I, I don't think you want to preempt that it's not, a big enough issue mm -hmm. for you to worry about it. So number one, don't overthink this. It's fine. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people get a committee letter or don't get a committee letter. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And so just, I would say, just don't worry about it. And if, if for some reason a question comes up about it, just respond to it. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think we see it often enough that, that yeah. we're just all familiar yeah. with that being the case. Yep. Um, what you shouldn't do that I'm going to do right now is rant about how committee letters are totally unjust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have trouble with letters, period, honestly. I mean, I understand why they are helpful um, for admissions officers, but um, I, I have some doubt about their validity as a tool in general. And I definitely think there are too many schools that have uh, – maybe not random, but highly varying rules, right? So, you know, there's a school in the Northeast that a lot of you are familiar with that has very, very stringent rules on GPA and MCAT that are um, essentially eliminating a bunch of people. Like the school is sending the message that if you don't have well above average stats compared to matriculates that you can't even apply. Mm -hmm. And that just makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, so those people aren't forbidden from applying, but they're not getting their school support. And Mm -hmm. I don't I don't understand why an undergraduate institution gets to make the decision. I think a med school should make the decision. So Absolutely. I know obviously, Amy, you didn't express any anger or negativity. You just stated facts. I'm just ranting a little on your behalf. I think that's a baloney rule. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, just dig dig up your individual letters and you'll be good. Okay, Rochelle, how can I start finding shadowing opportunities? Great question. It's a hustle. <laughs> you make phone calls, you stop into offices, you send emails, you ask a physician that you know if themselves or anybody that they know in another practice or hospital setting would be available or open to having you shadow them. You can also look at your straight kind of licensing registration or directory to find physicians in your area that you can use to start contacting them. There are also uh, professional organizations that a lot of physicians are part of that are national organizations and they have chapters within the state, sometimes within the city, and you can contact them. You know, usually they are very open to giving back and having people shadow them and strengthening pre-meds and medical students coming and following in their footsteps. So those would be right off the bat um, what I would suggest in, in kind of reaching out. But a lot of it will fall on you and just initiating the contact and, you know, not being afraid to hear the word no and just reaching out early, often, and, and continuing to, to seek out opportunities that you think will help 
provide a global perspective for you and better prepare you for med school and, and give you the experience that you need. Anybody else have anything? Oh, you're muted, Dr. Wright. I agree completely. <laughs> yep. Okay. And good All luck. Right. I think it might be Rachel, not Rochelle, although oh, okay. she doesn't spell it my way. Um, but as a fellow Rachel, I think that's a Rachel. But anyway, good luck. It's really hard. Just yep. keep knocking on doors. <laughs> yep. Okay, Jonathan, who should read your primary and secondary essays to make sure they are good? Should you use a paid service or have someone you trust read it? Okay, well, I think we can stay impartial on on this. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. you know, we provide services like that where, you know, any one of the three of us plus two additional people could look it over and, and give you feedback on, on what you've written. But you can definitely ask others to read it. The more people you ask, the more opinions you're going to get. And mm -hmm. so I think um, being strategic in who you ask is helpful. I don't know. I mean, I think most people's go-to would be family members, which is good and bad, I would say. I kind of personally view it. One, they know you, so they can glean probably or read into things or understand the context more than somebody who doesn't know you and and may not be able to give you just kind of the, the shock value of the initial read not knowing somebody. Yep. But, um, you know, sometimes it's good to have their perspective and, and see if it ac accurately represents you. Um, and take advantage of your, uh, you know, if you're at a school right now, your pre-med advisor, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes the career office will do that. They're not always well equipped to, uh, to know what a personal statement for a, a medical school essay should look like. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do, I agree with what Courtney said. I think, you know, limit the number of people you have do it and keep in mind what, where they're coming from, what their context is yeah. for, for giving you uh, advice. Uh, you really want to try to get advice from people who kind of know what's going on and what the, what it's like and what should be and uh, in a, in a personal statement. So that's the value of your pre-med advisor at your school or uh, paid service, whether it's us or somebody else. So just, you know, uh, keep in mind, you know, but I would limit that number of people because as Courtney said, you're going to get, if you have 20 people read it, you're going to get 20 opinions and sooner or later it's going to start driving you crazy. So, yep. yeah. Well, yeah. and, and ask you, as you ask people to read it, maybe have a couple of very specific things that you want them to look for. Like what's the tone? What overall tone do you get from this? Is it negative? Is it positive? Do I seem passionate? Do I seem empathetic? Are these examples um, good ones to use? So overall tone of it is would be helpful to understand to make sure that you're not negatively projecting yourself or or coming across in a way that you weren't meaning to um, but it's read that way to others and thought process and flow it's not choppy it makes sense how you ordered things and and the experiences that you mentioned and um, and that the reader comes away knowing that you actually answered the question um, that they can glean that from what you've written. And I think 
those three, if they could give you some feedback on that should help um, and, and not leave it just open-ended. You should put this word here, or I don't really like this sentence and blah, 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 which, you know, could be modified, but um, it's not, everybody's writing style will be different. You need to know kind of overarching feedback, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, one of my rules of thumb within admissions essays is the people who review it should respect you more than they love you. Um, you know, it just parents in particular, um, you know, they can't be unbiased in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say this to all pre-meds, in the grand scheme of humanity, in terms of your brightness, your discipline, your willingness to help people, you're special, right? Among pre-meds, those things don't make you special. So often the challenge with family is they wanna focus on your attributes because your attributes are wonderful and like they really admire you, but those attributes don't make you stand out as a pre-med. And we're not trying to have you be unique. We're trying to have you share an authentic story. So, um, you know, uh, again, if you ask 10 advisors, you'll get 10 answers. But here at MedSchool HQ and Mapped, we believe in the narrative. So I've seen parents say, well, why'd you write about all these patients? I want to hear about you. I'm like, well, that's what activities essays are for. We're going to hear mm -hmm. about you there. Um, the personal statement is why medicine. And I've seen many students write really great essays that answer the wrong question. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think one of the classic pitfall to avoid when you're getting non admissions expert help is just make sure they don't help you write a great essay answering not the question that's asked. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is I mean, this is your opportunity to kind of give us some insight beyond the numbers, beyond the listings and the categorization and just give us some context, give us some background, provide us, you know, with what you've learned and why this is important and where you want to go with it. And, you know, whatever you want to answer in the why medicine, but, but this is your opportunity. It's kind of a, a teaser. If you, we could say, you know, where it's like, okay, we like all of these numbers and, you know, they had good coursework and wow, they've got a lot of experience hours. And this gives us, you know, a bit of the soft side, the the soft skills, a bit of context for you as a person and, and what your driver is to see if we do want to invite you for an interview. So take the opportunity to use it what it's what it's for. Everything else has its purpose and, and this is the purpose of the personal statement. Yeah, and so while we're talking about getting essay help, um, I want to remind everyone, oh, I just, messed up the J and application jumpstart. Okay, so free workshop. It's a five-week series that's an introduction to the application process. It starts Thursday, December 1st. So if you're watching live, that's tomorrow. Um, and each week, um, Dr. Gray and Courtney and Scott and I and our other fellow advisor, Verenia, we're all going to be there, or at least some of us each week. And we're going to talk about every aspect of the application from are you ready to apply to how to tackle your personal statement, how to do activities, how to handle interviews. And it's all going to be live and interactive. Very few slides, very little lecturing. Um, we're going to give you some big picture concepts and then jump right into questions. So, you know, Jonathan, you were saying who can look at my personal statement? Well, we can't look at yours 100% top to bottom because we can't do that for hundreds of people at a free workshop but we will be taking snippets from people who have drafts and doing live review on the spot. So, um, so yeah, in addition to 
um, you know, the fact that we have paid services, we do try to offer something free to everyone. And this is the start of that. So come on down to, to Application Jumpstart and we can get you some feedback there. Yep. Jan, how are reapplication viewed? Okay, so reapplicants, I would think. Um, I don't know, I can, I'll jump in and I guess get us started. There's probably a number of different things. Again, the, the classic answer depends. I would say it's never a bad thing to see somebody reapply. That lets me know that they are interested in attending um, where I'm at, especially if it's somebody that, you know, maybe they weren't successful in obviously gaining a seat in the prior cycle, but they called or they had an advising appointment and they asked, you know, what can I do to strengthen my chances? I really want to attend here. And then I see evidence of them actually being teachable, taking that, applying it, doing all the hard work and coming back to me. I think that that's a benefit. I always viewed it very favorably um, to, to see that. And I'm, unfortunately right now, I mean, there's just not enough seats to go around. So it's hard to get in. It's very hard to get in just your first go round. Um, it's, it's just a competitive process and sometimes timing or strategy or your application or things need to be changed. And sometimes it's, it's just how it happened and, and there weren't enough seats even though you were perfectly qualified. So I don't think it's bad. I wouldn't just copy paste everything exactly over because in our software, we are able to see if you've applied to us before, how much we let it notify us of you being a reapplicant is totally at the discretion of the uh, med schools. And so sometimes they don't wanna know and they wanna look at the application as if it's fresh. So it would be something that you have to mention versus something that just is automated in their system. But Dr. Wright, you may have more kind of insight on how yeah. you guys did it or what you know too. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say in general that uh, reapplicants are not disadvantaged in the process. Uh, I think most admissions committees are going to uh, give you the advantage of you know what you have in your application. The fact that you're a reapplicant doesn't really necessarily have any negative impact on that. I think they're going to want to know. Uh, maybe what you've done to improve your application. And that would be, you know, part of the reflection process. They're going to want to see how self-aware you are and how uh, reflective you are about, you know, maybe the weaknesses of your application or, or whatever. And so, um, so, but I, I don't think that you need to worry about being a reapplicant. Just, uh, you know, try to identify any weaknesses, work on those and, and move forward and keep, you know, keep going. I, I've known people who, who applied, you know, I, I knew one applicant in, in particular who applied four times and uh, got in on the fourth shot. So uh, you never, you know, you never know. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, next question. If applying next cycle, how early to start the application? Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't actually start filling it out. However, you can definitely start prepping for the components of the application um, long before it actually opens and you're wanting to hit submit. So anybody want to jump in on this one? 
Yeah, completely agree. Roughly speaking, you want to start the application 18 months before you start med school. And this also got asked it in the chat a different way. So just giving specifics, uh -huh. most med schools start in July or August. So if uh -huh. you want to start in July or August of 2024, you should be starting to work on your application in roughly by January 2023. Um, mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the rough timeline. So even though you're not actually filling out applications until May, um, you're you're working on personal statements, you're working on activities, all of that is happening. I mean, there we have students who have already been doing it for a month or two because their winter spring is going to be really busy, so they needed to start earlier. Um, and every year there are people that come to me in April or May who say, hey, I had a crazy spring semester and the MCAT and I'm just now starting. Some of them get in. It's just not fun for them. Yeah. And also, I find that often their essays lack because the personal statement requires a lot of reflection. And the drafts that come out the best, the final versions that come out the best, had breathing time. Mm -hmm. Right. So you do what we often refer to. I'm sure there's a technical term. I don't know what it is. I refer to it as the puke draft. Um, just word vomit, right? Just, you know, yeah. and you talk to your family and you talk to your friends and you ask them to tell you things about your childhood that are fuzzy memories for you until they tell you and it kickstarts something in your brain and you're like, I do remember. I do remember saving that frog down by the creek or whatever, right? Um, and, and then you go away from it for a few weeks and come back. And your brain has been working on that problem while you were not directly on it. Um, so, yeah, I, I say start early, not because it's a six month job, but because I think it's a six or eight week job that goes better if it's spaced out over time with breaks. Yep. Yeah. And and if you guys, you know, I mean, if you think about it, if you cram it all down into right before you need to hit submit, it's going to be a tremendous amount of work. If, you know, there's typos or you're just like, you know what, I don't have time to fill out this section as thoroughly as I could have. I just need to get it in, get it in. You're not giving yourself credit for a lot of things that could be really valuable to schools. You don't know like what specific things they may want to see evidence of or be looking for. And so you've already put in so much work. Make sure that you're proud of what you submit and you're putting your best foot forward for that. And don't try to cram it down into just a couple of days and think you're going to send it off. That's going to be really difficult. And then you're going to immediately get secondaries back. And so if you're not ready to be bogged down again with a tremendous amount of writing right after you did that intensive for the application, it's going to be a bit rough. And, you know, it's, it's maybe not the best way to plan for it. If you have to do it that way, obviously understandable, but if you're trying to plan it out, extend your timeline and actively work on things before they are due, which is sometimes not the college way, but needs to be done. And it's a good skill and it will carry over into med school because you're going to have to do that there too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Vehement nods from Scott. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I do want to make a plug because I am seeing some of these questions that are coming in for people who are planning on filling out their applications starting in May. We do have Application Academy, which yeah. is 600. Yeah. And we understand that's quite a bit. But <laughs> with that, we host 10 sessions a week. We have office hours. 
We've got group peer critiques, reviews, where we'll pull up your personal statement. We'll pull up certain essays. We'll go over secondaries and it can be anonymous and everybody gives feedback. You're able to read other people's to inform, you know, kind of what they're writing and what they're saying. So I would say, and, and from what we've heard, it's a tremendous value in just making sure that you're actively getting the things done that you need to ahead of time, having somebody proof them, getting different feedback perspectives, things like that, and then being able to polish it before you need to submit it. So if that is of interest to you, it's it's just a tremendous opportunity and it's you know a bunch of people who are also applying and you guys kind of collaborate together as as peers into putting your best foot forward. So mm-hmm. not yeah. not to be silly, but I really think it's it's very helpful if you're worried about how to navigate all of these different aspects. And, you know, those of us that are instructors, we get to provide some actual direct feedback from what we read, what you submit and things like that to, to give you something concrete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think, um, you know, these, these are mostly free events, but of course we are going to mention the stuff we offer. And I've been talking to so many people about Application Academy in the last few weeks. And the number one piece of feedback I hear is I had no idea group advising was even an option. Yeah. Right? So just the fact that it exists, like people don't realize, yeah, of course we have one-on-one and one-on-one is a lot more because it takes up time, right? The advisor can only help one student at a time, but we really do try to think about um, the whole spectrum of economics. That's why we have so much that's for free. And then this, I mean, 600 is still a lot of money. I'm not acting like it's cheap. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's a lot cheaper than one-on-one. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, every week for a year, <laughs> if you want it, I mean, and office hours and TAs um, where you're working with us and we're available to you that often, you know, along with some of your peers, if if you are really, really stressed or you know you need kind of motivation boost or structure or, you know, mentorship and things like that, just wanted to throw it out there and we can move on to the next question so I don't feel like I'm trying <laughs> to like sell something. I'm trying to be helpful. <laughs> okay. For MC, should I be good if have zero research experience, but over 2,500 hours of clinical experience. Okay, so um, research is generally not a requirement prior to entering med school. Um, There are pre-meds that do research while in their undergrad or in a post-bac or as they're waiting to get into medical school, but I would say more often than not, it is not a requirement. Um, So if you have zero, that is okay. And, you know, if you're looking at med schools and you happen to find the handful that are very explicit in saying it's a requirement, then you can determine what you want to do there. But 25, over 2,500 hours of clinical experience is, is a good chunk of time. (laughs) So, um, and it's directly applicable to med school, hopefully. So um, if if you were going to be lopsided, if you put 2,500 hours of research and zero clinical, then you're in trouble. In this case, um, you should be able to navigate that if, if you're not able to get research. Yeah. 
Um, okay, I was just going to say, can we take the hate hippies? There you go. Thanks, Veronica. Okay. All right. Are we required to submit an unaccredited regionally or nationally nursing school classes that I did for LVN LPN license, or is this exempt since it is unaccredited? Yes, I have a license. So I know this one for AMCAS off the top of my head. I don't know mm -hmm. Acomas or Texas off the top of my head. Okay. Um, for AMCAS, and go read the handbook because mm -hmm. sometimes it varies year to year and I've only read this year's. I haven't seen next year's yet because it's not out. But currently their rule of thumb is they wanna see every course attempted at a post-secondary institution that offers associates and bachelor's degrees. So this is where it gets tricky. If you get a nursing school certificate at Columbus State Community College or some other two or four year university that offers associates and bachelors, even if you just got a certificate, by their rules, by AMCAS's rules, they wanna see it. Where if you went to a for-profit institution like you said, unaccredited. So I think that's the case where you're just getting the certificate and there aren't any degrees offered at that program, then AMCAS does not need to see it. And even if you list it, would not count those grades in their GPA calculator. Um, yeah, I I would say ACOMAS is probably gonna be the same there. I know in the wording that I'm familiar with, it's we wanna see regionally or nationally accredited uh, courses taken or attempted. Um, and, you know, sometimes this will happen with foreign coursework or, mm -hmm. you know, doing post-secondary courses outside of the U.S. where the, the credits don't align. There's no way to calculate that and factor it into the GPA. And so they're left out, but we still want a document of it to know, you know, yes, I went to a naturopathic school and here's this, it wasn't specified as a post-secondary accredited institution, but here is evidence of that. So yeah, read the fine print on that. They should, you should be able to find very uh, specific and direct language for this requirement mm -hmm. on any of the application platforms, I would say. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. Well, I was just going to say, I, 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 if there is a question at all in your mind, err on the side of submit it. If the mm -hmm. application service doesn't want it to be in there, they will take it out. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you don't want, you definitely don't want it to. You not put it on there, and then them come back and say, "Why didn't you put this on there?" Yeah, you know, this is you no, know, you're this is bad. You're hiding this, and blah blah blah. And so, I would err on the side of conservatism. Include it all send the transcript and then if they don't want it or if they don't not going to look at it then let them make that decision yep yeah and then just i mean so for you um our our hate hippie friend but anyone who's applying in this coming upcoming cycle the handbook is your best friend mm -hmm. um with amcas it's a pdf that you can download with um Chusio in texas they're a little bit more in the 21st century it's just a dynamic website um what I recommend, and it's not fun, is that before you apply to any application <clears throat> service, read the entire thing. Yep. And you're not reading it to try to absorb it all. You're reading it to know roughly what's in there. Mm -hmm. And then bookmark it and use your beautiful Control F or whatever it is on Apple, Command F, Apple F, I don't know. Use your find function 
and just type in keywords to go double check specific things. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I reread the AMCAS handbook every single year. And I mean, I still don't have it memorized. I have parts of it memorized, but it does change. So um, you, you can't think of it as like, um, I'm gonna read that guidebook once and I'm good. You have to think mm -hmm. of it as I'm gonna keep it at my elbow or on my bookmarks bar for the entire time I'm applying so that I'm mm -hmm. constantly referring. Cause I mean, you can ask us for interpretation help, but ultimately we're just interpreting whatever they say. Right, so you, you want to go to the source. Yep. Yep. Well, I think we've run out of time again. Indeed. These hours go by so quickly. Sorry Indeed. if we didn't get to your question. We're always still available. So if you need to chat with us, we're here. We'll be back again next week. For those of you that are going into an application cycle, um, join us for that that free session that we're hosting, we're gonna at least get you guys going on some of the concepts and making sure you have the information that you need there. And if nothing else, we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye. Adios. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.